so glad that y'all are here tonight. I believe if uh, I did the math correctly, we are in our fifth week out of seven weeks that we are studying the deity of Christ. Um, and since we're five weeks in, it's probably a good idea to ask the question, what, what does deity mean? <laughs> you, you need to have a good definition for that. We need to have a good definition for the word deity. Now, if you've ever seen the movie, The Princess Bride, uh, then you know just how good it is. If you haven't ever seen that movie, you ought to. And I rarely say that about a movie. Um, my administrative assistant, Christina White, who is teaching over in the women's ministry right now, um, she became a U.S. citizen, I want to say about 12 years ago. She's worked with me for, I guess she's going on 18 years. Maybe we should just celebrate. So you should pray for her. Put her on your prayer list. 18 years. Good gracious. Can you imagine? Um, but so she spent several decades in this country assimilating to American culture. And I said, one of the movies you've got to see is The Princess Bride. And I think about a year, year or two years ago, she eventually saw it. Heavens, I was listening to uh, a, a, a podcast with John Piper on it, and he said that's one of his favorite movies. So again, see it if you haven't seen it. And if you have, you know that there's some classic lines in that movie that are notable quotables, right? Uh, and, and one of those comes as three of the bad guys are climbing up what is called the Cliffs of Insanity. Right? You've got Benzini, you've got Fezzik, and you've got Inigo Montoya. And they are climbing up a long rope up, these, up this cliff face. And they're being chased by the hero of the story, Wesley. And he's down below. He hops on that same rope and starts climbing. And when they get to the top, Fezzik who is one of the bad guys, even though he's a very lovable bad guy, he, he cuts the rope and looks over and notices that Wesley didn't fall. Now, all the way up this, prior to cutting the rope, all the way up this little journey up this cliff, Fezzik has been using a particular word over and over and over again. And if you've seen the movie, what is that word? Inconceivable, right? You've got to say it that way. Um, and so he looks over the ledge after cutting the rope and he goes, he didn't fall! Inconceivable! And in that moment, Inigo Montoya says the classic line, you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> right? Same thing could be said about the word deity. Oh. Uh, we keep using that word, but maybe it doesn't think it mean what we, what we think it means. What is deity? Well, just to review, just to sum up, um, I think a great definition for it is godness. Now, I know that's not a, an accurate English word, godness. But when we talk about the deity of Christ, we're talking about his godness. As, as in contrast to his humanity, which he has both. Um, deity is a theological and somewhat academic word, but I believe that's the simplest way to define it, is his godness. The word of God describes the person of Jesus Christ not just as a good teacher or a prophet or a, some historical martyr, but the word of God describes him as God himself. 
in Hebrews 1, the first three verses, describe Jesus this way. And for many of you, you've, you've already heard, if you've been here over the past couple of weeks in this study, you've already heard this passage over and over again. It's just so rich. Hebrews 1.1 begins, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by who? His Son, that's right, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He, this is in reference to the Son, He, verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Bottom line is, Jesus is God Himself. That's what the Word of God testifies to. That's what deity is. It's, he's God incarnate. He's in the flesh. Fully man, yet fully God at the same time. And as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.9, in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now I'm going to tell you something. If that doesn't cause us to scratch our heads and ultimately fall down in awe of the great God we serve, then we're not reading it close enough. We're not thinking deep enough about this issue of the deity of Christ. See, what we're going to do tonight and what we've done the past couple of weeks is not an academic exercise. When we study the Word of God... It's way more personal than an academic exercise. Because as our knowledge about Jesus deepens, our love for Him grows. And I pray that that's what happens tonight as we dig in to some particular statements about the deity of Christ. I'm usually in here on Wednesday nights, but this particular run of classes, I haven't been. I'm, I'm, I'm in a, another class. Uh, over in the back of the fellowship hall. Yeah. But I've been keeping up by listening to the other brothers that have been teaching through the, our podcast ministry. And we've looked at the deity or the godness of Jesus in a variety of passages and in several different subtopics. And, and, and this really is a very big but very important doctrinal issue. It's important we get this right. And I praise God for the good teaching that is here in our church. <clears throat> faithful people over and over again that teach the Word of God really, really faithful to the text. And I praise God that that's been happening in here. But we began our series in here by looking at several passages in the book of Mark that demonstrated Jesus' divine authority. You remember that? His, his authority over Satan and demons and sin and disease and the Sabbath and even His authority over all creation. And then in the, more few, in, the, in, the, in the more recent few Wednesday nights, we've looked at other passages from John and Matthew that highlight the divine claims that Jesus made about Himself as God. And so we're going to kind of stick with that sub-theme, claims that Jesus made about Himself. But we will focus on one claim tonight that Jesus uses over and over and over and over again, and you see it up there on the screen. It's what? I am. That's right. And the I am statements specifically come out of what book in the New Testament? 
the book of John. That's right. We remember that from our study of John that we did for many, many months on Sunday mornings. Um, the book of John is unique in that regard. The I am statements are only in the book of John. And who wrote the book of John, by the way? Not a trick question. John who, though? John the Apostle. Not John the Baptizer. John the Apostle is the one that wrote the book of John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And why was... I'm going to quiz you on this. You folks that have come regularly to our church, faithful members... Why was the book of John written? It's at the very end of the gospel account. That you may believe. Amen. We saw it over and over again on that bumper video that would lead up right before the sermon when we were. So that you might believe. Here's the words of John 20. End of the book. Verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Amen? Amen. So tonight we're going to look briefly at nine I Am statements in the book of John and really see how they affirm the deity of Christ. Sound good? Again, as I mentioned earlier, that's going to be helpful to us because as we, we understand who God is, we grow and our love for Him grows. But in addition to that, this can also be uh, an equipping tool for us as we're talking to those and being a witness to those who don't know Christ, who are lost, particularly those who believe that Jesus, if he even lived historically, was simply a good guy, a good teacher. Maybe a prophet, maybe not. So I hope that this is an equipping time as well. Now before we jump into John 6, because that's where we're going to be for the most of tonight, um, I want us to look at the original I am statement. So let's go to the Old Testament and let's look at Exodus 3. Now we're going to be doing a lot of flipping around or swiping around depending on what you're looking at, what kind of Bible you're looking at. And it's mostly going to be contained in the book of John, but tonight we're going to start in Exodus 3 and see the origin of the very first I am statement. Um, who is the book of Exodus about? Who? What person? Okay. He is a, a important key to the book of Moses, but the book of Moses is like the rest of the Bible. It's about God <laughs> and his love and his covenant with his people. There's the, There's the trick question. Yep, yep. But in Exodus chapter 3, what's Moses doing? If, if you're familiar with the chapter, you know he's tending his sheep. He's been doing that for how long? 40 years, that's right. What a gig. But he sees a burning bush, and that's different. <laughs> Something different happens on this day. He sees a burning bush, and the Lord God Almighty speaks to him out of that bush. And the big takeaway from that conversation for Moses is that it's when God says, Moses, 
you're going to go to Pharaoh and command him to let my people go. And you're going to be the one who leads the people out of Egypt. It's a huge moment in the unfolding plan of redemption that God has for his people. But it's also a huge moment in Moses' life, too. Can you imagine? And like you or me would probably be, Moses is immediately resistant to this whole plan. <laughs> and he begins to ask God questions. Verse 13 of Exodus 3. Let's begin looking at that there. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. That's quite an answer, don't you think? It's a mouthful, actually. So let's pick it apart together. Look at verse 13 first. Moses asked a simple question. If I come and they ask me, what is his name? What do I say, God? What do I say? Now, it's not that Moses doesn't know who he's talking to in this moment. God's already identified himself by this point in Exodus 3. But the question here is about authority. Moses is asking about authority. By whose authority am I going to do this? In whose name am I going to say this and do this? God clarifies exactly on whose authority Moses is going to be sent, right? What's God's reply in verse 14? I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent you. Ooh. Has sent me to you. Excuse me. Now, there's a lot going on in that answer in verse 14. But notice something right off the bat about this response. God is, God is responding to Moses' objection. See, many skeptics who are critical of the Bible really have never actually examined it closely. That a lot of people have this image of God, particularly in the Old Testament, like he's some uh, older gentleman yelling at kids to get off his lawn, right? Sort of the mentality of what the God of the Old Testament seems to be like in many people's view. But given multiple objections from Moses in this chapter alone, God certainly could have annihilated him and been right. But he didn't do that. He's patient with Moses. He's patient with his people. He's long-suffering. He's a gracious, heavenly father. And God's response is patience here, even when he didn't have to be patient. Now, in some of your translations, verse 14, I am who I am, or even I am in the second piece of it, are in all caps, but they're in small caps. You see that? 
Maybe that's true for you in your translation. And, and because it's in all caps, it's not like when you're texting somebody and yelling at them. Ah! You know, it's not like that. By the way, if you text in all caps, don't do that. Unless you're really mad. And then it's quite appropriate. But that's not what's going on here. It's the opposite of that. God is demonstrating His gracious nature and His patience as a heavenly Father. Uh, th this is Yahweh, the self-existent, self-revealing God who relates to His people, who relates to all creation. Verse 14, I am who I am. So that begs the question, why does God name Himself to Moses in this way? Well, Exodus 3.14 is actually teaching the distinction between God and us. God alone is the eternal one. He has no beginning and He has no end. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. He was never created. But everything that exists was created by Him. We are the created ones and He is the Creator. And you and I have a tendency to forget that, don't we? I bet you were tempted this week to forget that you're not the, that, that you are the creator, that God is the creator, excuse me. We tend to often think that we deserve to be the creator when there's only one creator. Moses is being reminded of that here. Pastor John Piper puts it this way. He says, God exists absolutely. He did not come into being and will never go out of being. He is not becoming or growing or changing. He said, I am who I am. That is his name. He absolutely is. See, in verse 14, Moses is asking the question, what should I say if they ask me on whose authority am I being sent? And God says, tell them I am sent you. That's who you need to tell them. Tell them the eternal self-existent one who not only knows the beginning from the end, but who created the beginning and the end. Tell him that's the one who sent you. This is the origin of the first I am statement. And do you know who used the same phrase of I am about himself in the New Testament? Jesus. 1,500 years later, as recorded in the book of John. The difference is, Jesus didn't have to ask like Moses did, on whose authority am I being sent? He knows. So when he uses I am about himself in each one of the statements we're about to look at, he's claiming nothing less than full equality with God the Father. He's equating himself to Yahweh, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father, as we see him reveal himself in the Old Testament. It's fascinating. This is why these I am statements are so shocking to the first century listeners that were hearing Jesus say them. So, let's take a look at them together. There's nine of them. Some people say there's only seven, but there's nine of them. And the first one is in John 6, verse 35, and then repeated in verse 48. So if you, again, got your Bible or you want to swipe over to John 6, let's get there together. I want you to see this. 
And in the early part of John 6, well, you're looking at it there in your Bible. What is Jesus doing? What miraculous thing does he do in the early part of John 6? What is he doing? He's feeding the 5,000. Thank you, Dr. Ed. He's feeding the 5,000. And then the next day, the crowd by the Sea of Galilee showed up again. Um, and they eventually caught up with Jesus because, hey, you don't pass up a free meal, do you? I mean, that, that wasn't common. But sadly, the crowd had missed the whole point of the miracle the day before. They'd missed the whole point of why Jesus did it. So what he does in verse 35 is he states it plainly to them why he did that miracle. Verse 35, John 6, look at it in your Bibles. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Okay, what is he referring to here? Is he referring to physical bread? No, he's not. Because physical bread doesn't do that, right? <laughs> I mean, some of you ate an hour and a half ago and you're already hungry, right? You eat some good bread and pretty soon it's going to go through your system and you're going to want some more. That's what happens with physical bread. So he's not talking about that. But Jesus miraculously fed everybody the day before, not merely as a gracious provision. Yes, it was that but to demonstrate that He's God and that He as Messiah can satisfy a greater spiritual hunger that's more than just your belly. And how does that happen? Well, He says how it happens. There's, there's two, two things to pay attention to in, in verse 35. He says, whoever comes to me and whoever believes in me, comes and believes, you like writing in your Bible? Just underline or, or highlight those two words. Comes and believes. To come to Christ means we repent from our sin. How, how do we come to a holy God? We turn from our sin. We turn from our old way of life. We turn from our rebellion. Whoever comes to me. Spurgeon once said, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. Whoever comes. He didn't just say whoever comes, but whoever, what was the second one? Believes. Whoever comes and whoever believes. Believing in Christ is the second part of it. That means we trust Him. We're believing in Him. We're believing in what He said about Himself. What was the problem with the religious leaders of that day? Did they think He was the Messiah? No. Plenty of people didn't. But believing in Christ is not some intellectual or esoteric activity. No, believing in Christ means we're trusting Him by faith. That's how a person responds to the good news of what God has done for sinners like you and me. Is we come to Christ and we believe in Christ. We, we repent and turn from our sin and we turn to Christ to trust Him. Two parallel things. Two sides of the same coin of salvation. It's a good way to look at it. That this is what God has done for sinners. He sent His Son. One who is both fully man and yet fully God. 
Jesus says, I am the same God that provided you with manna in the wilderness. Bread. But this provision that he's talking about here in John 6.35, this provision is not temporary. It's permanent. It's eternal for all those who come to him and believe in him. He says, I am the bread of life. Secondly, moving a little bit forward in the book of John to chapter 8. He makes his second I am statement. And in this other instance, Jesus is once again teaching publicly. But here he's in the city of Jerusalem, specifically in the temple. Fascinating that Jesus teaches a lot in the temple. And this was during the Feast of Tabernacles, when there were these huge lamps that were burning in the temple complex. In the court of women specifically at that time, there were these four huge candelabras, fully lit. And at night, they would have been the brightest thing around in the city. And the fascinating thing is everybody that came and heard Jesus teach walked through darkness to get to that amazing display of light. And what does Jesus say? Look at verse 12 of John 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them and said, I'm what? I'm the light of the world. <laughs> I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So by claiming to be the light here, Jesus is claiming to be God. The world that we live in is in darkness, is it not? I mean, you and I don't have to watch two minutes of news to know that clearly. There's evil. There's sin and ignorance and rebellion. And that rebellion is against the, the one who created both light <laughs> in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and who created mankind in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In the Bible, light is a sort of an ongoing symbol of God's holiness. That word is used in picturesque ways throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament to connect with God's holiness. And for all those who come to Christ and believe in Christ, remember, come to Christ and believe in Him, repent and trust, same thing. For all those who come to Christ and believe in Christ, Jesus says they will not walk in darkness, but will have what? The light of life. Fascinating. See, coming to Christ for salvation results in a different kind of life for those who come to Him and believe in Him. A believer will never walk in darkness. Now, we're not perfect. I am chief among sinners in that regard. But our posture towards sin is different than it is towards the way lost people have a posture towards sin. Our posture as believers towards sin is that we don't excuse our sin. We don't rationalize our sin. 
In fact, because of who indwells us, the Holy Spirit, we hate our sin. And we're to put it to death on a daily basis. Jesus is saying here that we don't remain in our ignorance and rebellion if we are His. Because we have Christ as our light and our salvation. I am the light of the world. It's interesting. This is this, this uh, I am statement, I am the light of the world, this second one here, is a part of a longer conversation in chapter 8 that unearths several more I am statements. So stay in chapter 8 of John and move down to verse 21. 21. Because there's another I am statement, the third one that we're looking at today. And this conversation continues. So again, verse 21, so again, excuse me, so he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, we will, will he kill himself since he says where I am going, you cannot come. Now again, surprise, surprise, Jesus has been teaching in the temple and he's drawn the attention of the Jewish leaders. So verse 22, when it says the Jews said, and they're asking this question, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going you cannot come? Jesus is specifically dialoguing back and forth with them, the Jewish leadership. And he's making a particular point that's kind of twofold. <laughs> that, that Jesus' time for his own earthly ministry was short. How, how many years did Jesus uh, minister? Yeah, three years on the earth. Okay, And he only lived to be about 33 years old. So that's not a long lifespan. If you think about it in, times, in terms of even human lifespans or even in contrast to eternity. 33 years? It's a blip on the radar. His earthly ministry was short. He knew that the cross was coming and he knew that's why he had come. Was to go to the cross and give his life as a ransom for many. And soon he'd go back to the Father. But the Pharisees' opportunity for trusting in him was also on a short time frame, too. It was both. Not either or, but both. Look at what the text says next. Stay in verse 23. He says to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. <laughs> I love how Jesus interacts with the religious leaders. Time and time again throughout the Gospels, He is um, bold. You could even categorize it as harsh to those who are self-righteous. And he is kind to those who understand that they are sinners, the humble. 
Now let's be clear about something. The, the pronoun he in this phrase where he says, for unless you believe that I am he, the, 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 the word he there is not in the Greek text. Okay? It's a helpful pronoun to be added in English, but it's not in the Greek text. So let's read it again. Read verse 24 again. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am. What is he doing? He's appropriating that Old Testament name of Yahweh, connecting himself as God in the flesh. And, and we don't have to get that technical also to, to know how this shows the deity of Christ. Uh, for one, Jesus points out where he's from. Where's he from? Above, Above right? <laughs> I love that. He came from heaven, and no human being can say that they came from heaven. And he will return there in due time because, again, he is God and he is eternal. And, and, the, and the second piece of it is he's explaining that He is the ultimate remedy for sin. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That's big. Now the Pharisees don't and won't believe that about Jesus, but they know that only God can remediate our sin problem. And so who is it that will die in their sin? Well, not just the Pharisees. But anyone who does not believe that Jesus is God, and therefore they are not trusting in Him to save them. That word unless in verse 24, I hope you love that word as much as I do. <laughs> unless you believe that I am. That word unless is the hope for any and every person you and I know. Unless. Unless you believe that I am. This statement too is about the deity of Christ. But the conversation ain't over yet, is it? <laughs> if you know chapter 8. Go all the way down to the end of chapter 8 and you'll see what happens when Jesus tells the Pharisees that He knows Abraham. <laughs> That's the fourth I am statement. Verse, um, look at verse 57. So the Jews said to him, again, same conversation. He's arguing. Uh, they are arguing. The same people are arguing with Jesus, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and, ye, and have seen, and, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. Now, most English teachers would wince at that. Because that ain't good English. But it wasn't English when Jesus said it, so who cares? Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. Anyone who does not believe that Jesus claimed to be God has never read verse 59. 
The way chapter 8 progresses and sort of unfolds as you're reading from verse 1 all the way to the bottom is, is near the beginning of the chapter, the Jewish leaders are thinking to himself, he's not making any sense. He, he, he can't be saying that he's God. No one says that. No one would do that. And then you get to the middle of the chapter and they've concluded, oh my, I think he might be saying he's God. And then you get to the end of the chapter and it's, oh, he just said he was God. Everybody grab a rock. The statement of deity here at the end is before Abraham was, I am. Abraham lived 2,000 years, over 2,000 years before this. This little moment that the Jewish leaders think they're getting one up on Jesus. But yet Jesus makes it clear here by using the Old Testament name Yahweh. I am. Jesus is saying, I'm timeless just like God is timeless. It's a fascinating thing to think about that God exist outside of the constraints of linear time. You and I don't. <laughs> we had a beginning. Now, by God's grace, we get to be eternal. If we know Christ, we'll eternally live with Him. If we don't, we'll eternally live under His judgment. But God does not live under the constraints. He does not live or exist under the constraints of linear time like we do. And Jesus, although He was incarnate for 33 years, He's timeless just like God is now. And the irony of all ironies is that they were ready to stone Jesus for what they perceived to be His blasphemy <laughs> when actually they were the ones blaspheming Him. A wild, wild little two verses there, or three verses. And Jesus ends the conversation by doing what? What does he do there in verse 59? Yeah, he leaves. You ever been in a room where you thought, I'd just like to disappear and slip out unnoticed? Well, Jesus can do that. You and I can't, but he did. <laughs> He hides himself supernaturally somehow and he slips away from the temple area because the conversation is over. At that point, you're throwing pearls at pigs. So, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Unless you believe that I am. And before Abraham was born, I am. Let's move to John chapter 10. Let's see the next one. John chapter 10 is the next one. If you look at the beginning of John chapter 10, you'll notice that the religious leaders are again not really understanding what Jesus is saying as he describes himself as the good shepherd. That's what John 10 is really all about, almost the whole chapter. So, he presses on, Jesus presses on, even though they're not understanding, and takes a different angle while staying in the same metaphor of sheep. Because that's a metaphor that most everybody understood. Verse 7, look at it with me. 
So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and destroy. I came that they, might, they may have life and have it abundantly. So he's talking about himself in terms of being a door. I am, again, appropriating the Old Testament name of God. I am the door of the sheep. I think a visual might help um, in this instance. This is how ancient sheep herders, shepherds, would pen up their sheep. And if you can see sort of in the far left corner of that pen, there's an opening, right? So this is, this is rock. It's not a high wall. It's actually quite a low wall, but it would hold sheep, right? Sheep aren't jumpers, <laughs> so they're not going to jump. And for the most part, this was a simple and efficient way to protect your sheep at night. Um, and it was a circle or a square, depending on the topography, that really only has one opening for the sheep to enter and exit. It's really pretty ingenious. And sometimes at night, the shepherd would lay across that opening to protect the sheep from predators or even thieves. Sort of the mentality is, you want my sheep? You got to come through me. They would lay over the opening. Literally risk their life for the sheep. Hmm, who does that sound like? <laughs> and in the verses just after this, Jesus would also make the point that a hireling would not do that. A hireling would not lay a cross, but only the shepherd would. Because the shepherd has an investment, known these sheep all their life, owns these sheep. And Jesus says here in verse 7 through 10, not only is that me as the good shepherd, but I'm that door. I'm that opening. Again, he's appropriating the name of Yahweh and equating himself to God. But then he makes this promise. If anyone enters by who? Me. He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. You know that promise is still offered today. It's still offered today. He is the door. And if anyone enters by him, they will be saved. And they will go in and they will go out, meaning that they don't have anything to fear. They're protected. There's no ultimate danger for them because they're under the care of a good shepherd. Friends, there's only one way to God, and that way is through the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. And in that promise that he makes here, he offers salvation from sin, death, 
and the judgment of God in hell. And he offers salvation not only from those things, but he offers salvation to eternal life. He says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. The word abundantly here means way more than necessary. If you grew up in a house with a mama that could cook, we were taught to clean your plate. Amen. Amen. <laughs> of course, that the older I've gotten, the more problematic that has become. Um, but if you're having biscuits and gravy, you want way more gravy than is necessary, right? That's just good. This word abundantly here means full and then some. This is the kind of life that Jesus has come to give his sheep. And of course, prosperity preachers love to take this and um, expand the definition to mean only good things like health, wealth, and happiness. But that's not the context here. The context is one of deliverance from danger. The sheep are not, no longer in any danger. They are cared for and they are provided for and they are protected by a good shepherd who's willing to lay his life down across that doorway. He is that doorway. Israel had experienced by this point lots of false shepherds. <laughs> but because Jesus is unique as he is the Lord God, he is the Lord God Almighty, they knew and, and just as we know from Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus' sheep here are given his protection and his provision in the salvation that he purchased for them by laying down his life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Unless you believe that I am, before Abraham was born, I am. I am the door of the sheep. For our purposes tonight, that's the deity of Christ from the I am statements in John. Now, I know many of you are thinking, oh, wait, 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 wait. There's more, right? Just like those bad commercials. Oh, wait, there's more. And yes, there are more. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some homework. If you choose to accept it. Now, again, it was free country. We believe in grace around here at McGregor. Uh, but I want to encourage you to find the last four I am statements in John and study them for yourselves. Ah, what the heck? Let's cheat. We got time for one more. Let's do John 14, 6. John 14, 6. This is probably familiar to many of you. But again, I've got the cheat sheet on the board, right? Open book test. 
Write those down if you want to take a look at the, uh, the other ones. Let's, let's, let's end on John 14, 6. Uh, start in verse 1, we'll get to verse 6 where he makes that infamous statement. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And then there's a pause. Because Thomas asks a question, and he asks a very legitimate question. He makes the statement, Lord, <clears throat> verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And what does Jesus do? He appropriates the Old Testament name of God, Yahweh. And he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, I fly occasionally, like some of you do. I don't fly a lot. I'm not a big fan of flying. I've never been a big fan of flying 300 plus miles an hour in an aluminum tube way up in the sky. That just doesn't thrill me. But sometimes I have to, and I do. And there are times where you'll sit by somebody and you'll engage them in conversation. Usually you'll say, you know, what do you do for a living? Particularly if it's a guy. You know, the guy sitting by a guy, they're, they're probably going to talk about work. What do you do for a living? And usually that's reciprocated. So I, I usually make the opening salvo. And I say, what do you do for a living? And they'll tell me, you know, what they do. They're an engineer or they're a salesperson or whatever. We'll talk about that for a while. And then it'll come back, typically, unless you've got somebody that's like still trying to put their headphones on and giving you the signal, I don't want to be talked to. Um, and then they'll say, well, what do you do for a living? And that's always where it gets interesting for me, right? Because of what I do for a living. Well, I'm a pastor at a church in Fort Myers. Oh, you're one of those people. Well, what kind of church is it? A Baptist church. Oh! Right? I know some of my brothers in this room have been in these conversations before. And as the conversation progresses, there, will, there has been a moment where someone will ask, so are you one of those people that think that there's only one way to God? Typically, my response has been down through the years, yes, but I'm blown away that there's even one way to God. Because no one deserves even one way to Him. Jesus makes the point here in John 14, 6, that there is clearly no other way to God but by Him. And that's not Him being mean or onerous. It is God Himself exercising His prerogative as God. Do any of us deserve a way? No. 
No, not at all. But there is one way and only one way. You hearken back all the way to the Old Testament where there was, how many arks were built? One. Oh, one? Not four or 40 or if you're Hindu, 29 million? Only one. Only one. And within that one ark, eight people took refuge and they were spared of the judgment of God. This is Christ Jesus. He's the ark. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And friend, if you're here tonight and you have never turned from your sin, you've never come to Him, never turned from your sin, and trusted in Him by faith. You've never believed in Him. Why not tonight? It's, a, it's an awesome thing to come to God because we are not worthy to come to Him. But unless we recognize that, we will never come to Him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Again, the deity of Christ, the exclusivity of the gospel, right there in John 14, 6. That's a good place to end on.